Hey, church, this past week, uh, Michelle Mowdy was baptized. She was baptized by her husband, Joseph, who is our drummer in the praise band. And this was uh, Friday, I believe, over there at the beach at South Beach. And so we want to show you a little video clip of that baptism. I've never seen anybody have so much fun at a baptism. <laughs> did, I say, did I say Nicole? I said Michelle, didn't I? I it was Nicole. I can't believe I said that. So it's Nicole Mowdy. I apologize. Let's show her again how much we appreciate her and welcome to the family. Let's stand up and welcome her. You sit down. We'll stand up. Welcome. Hey. All right. Way to go. Okay, thank you, Nicole. Great job. So we have other places. We do baptisms in pools as well, and we have a baptistry back there. But we really rejoice with Nicole and her baptism. We have a Discover presentation. If you're interested, looking for a church family and maybe thinking about Vera Christian Church, Nicole went through our Discover class, and we have opportunities to do that. You can sign up for a time slot back there in the Welcome Center, the Next Steps area. We have time slots that happen on Sunday also on weekdays and weeknights. So if you're interested, go back there and sign up, please. So there was a, uh, an employee who would leave his factory, and he started leaving with a wheelbarrow every day full of old used straw. Now, the security guard was watching. He thought something untoward was going on, but he would pick through the straw, couldn't find anything. After about a week of this, he stopped the guy. He said, look, I just know you're stealing something. I can't figure out what it is. I can't find it. He said, I'll make you a deal. If you'll tell me what it is you're taking, I won't report you, and you can keep whatever you've already got, but you have to stop taking those things. The employee said, deal. So the security guard said, all right, what is it that you're stealing? The employee said, wheelbarrows. <laughs> if you are new to us, we're in a sermon series on the Ten Commandments and today is the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. In each one of these, we've been looking for an overarching principle that we can apply to life. And the one today, believe it or not, is the sanctification, of the sanctified right to own personal, private property, all right? The right to own personal, private property. You may say, well, that sounds esoteric. It may be more applicable than you think. We're going to look at four ways in which this is true. Number one. God gives property rights. God gives property rights. Now, this starts with what we call the creation mandate. At creation, God's created Adam and Eve, Genesis 1:26. God created man in his own image. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish, the birds, and every living thing that moves on the earth. When God says, subdue the earth, rule over it, and the things that are in the earth, he's deeding the earth to mankind. A possession of personal property is presumed in this commandment. Exodus 20, 15, you shall not steal, presumes that someone owns something to steal. It's true in the 10th commandment as well. Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Thank you. Something belongs to the neighbor. Now, we might just assume this right to own property because of where we've grown up in our lifetimes. But a lot, we shouldn't assume. 
a lot of people have not had the right to own personal property in history and in different places. This was true not only in the Old Testament, it was true in the New Testament. When the church began, it was not a commune. It was not a socialist system. They maintained the right to own private property. We read in Acts chapter 5 how various ones in the Jerusalem church were selling parcels of land, bringing the money to the feet of the apostles for distribution. There was a great need in the church at that time. One couple named Ananias and Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. They brought the money to the apostles, but they lied about how much of it they brought. They said they brought the whole sale amount, but they only brought a part of it. So they had committed a sin. It was a sin of lying, though. That was the sin. So when Peter, the apostle, is rebuking them, he puts it this way. Acts 5.4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not, that's the proceeds of the sale, was it not under your control? So in the New Testament church, they did not relinquish the right to personal private property. Now, you may or may not be aware that socialism, this economic political system, is gaining traction in colleges and university campuses across America. It's gaining traction among a certain demographic known as Gen Z. A universal basic income is being applied and tried in more and more communities around the culture. With that in mind, I want to make sort of a, a narrow application of this God-giving property rights today. Let me read to you an excerpt from James Pearson's article, Socialism is a Hate Crime, and he wrote this in 2018. Kind of a long excerpt, so please hang with me. Why isn't socialism a hate crime? R.J. Rummel, a scholar of totalitarian movements, coined the phrase democide to describe politically motivated murder. While communists and socialists have not had a monopoly on democide, these movements have been responsible for far more political killings in the modern era, era than any other political movement or form of government. The communists have murdered between 110 million and 260 million people from 1900 to 1987. Joseph Stalin said a single death is a, is a tragedy, a million deaths a statistic. Why does the same thing happen over and over in socialist regimes? So socialist regime, communist regime, where the right to own personal property is either greatly diminished or eliminated. Socialist plans and policies, collectivization of agriculture, nationalization of industry, the concentration of power into the hands of a few, lead inevitably to economic collapse, repression, large-scale killing, and democide. Socialism always and everywhere begins with humanistic promises. It ends in barbarism. Socialist policies are always going to fail because it is impossible for central planners efficiently to allocate capital goods and services across a large economy. When there arise shortages of food, housing, or military equipment, that is, when socialist policies fail, leaders are faced with a choice of admitting failure and abandoning the socialist path or doubling down on their policies and preserving their power. It's in their nature to choose the latter course and press forward with more extreme measures which typically involve the identification of scapegoats as causes of failure. From there, it is but a few steps to catastrophic outcomes of show trials, terror famines, mass starvation, cultural revolutions, killing fields, and democide. Is socialism a hate crime? The record speaks for itself. Socialism is a hate crime, a doctrine of tyranny, mass murder, and human suffering on a vast scale. 
Now, the reason I take some time to go into that today and read that excerpt is not because I'm preaching necessarily a certain economic or political system. I simply want to demonstrate that, as always, God is the smartest person in the room. And His law enshrines the right to own personal property. And to the degree that we follow the wisdom of God, we will flourish as individuals and as a society. So God gives the right to own personal property. Number two, we're saying four things today. Number two, human ownership is relative. Human ownership is relative. So there's a big qualification here, a major qualification that we own stuff, but it's a relative ownership. It's not absolute. Absolute ownership belongs to God. Exodus chapter 19, 5, God says, all the earth is mine. And God's ownership of the earth and everything in it is based upon his work of creation. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the, the rivers. So what that means is when we got the creation mandate and when God gives us stuff, property, money, possessions, we are stewards. We are using them during our lifetime. But ultimately, they still belong to God. So that gives God the right in his word to tell us how to spend our money, save our money, and how to give. Now, this commandment is about stealing. You shall not steal. And God's word makes it clear if we don't follow his directions, for instance, on giving, that's a type of breaking the eighth commandment. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, God asks the Israelites, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And God answers in tithes and offerings. Now, under the Old Testament, the law of Moses, a tithe was a tenth. So the Israelites, the Jews, were to give a tithe of their income, a tithe of the produce of their fields, a tithe of their livestock and their flocks. They were to give 10% to support the tabernacle, later the temple, the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. They gave 10%. That was a command. That's what they were required to do by law. Now, if I understand what the Bible teaches, that command is not carried over into the New Testament. We are New Testament Christians. We're not Old Testament Jews. We're not under the law of Moses. Now, we believe in the Old Testament. There are principles that transfer. That's why we have a sermon series today on the Ten Commandments. But under the New Testament, God teaches us to give. We're still expected to give, to be generous givers, to be sacrificial givers, and to give as we have been prospered by God voluntarily and willingly. For instance, 1 Corinthians 16:2. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering so that no collections will need to be made when I come. We are to give as we've been prospered. We are to give generously. But a lot of people have noted, can we claim to be giving generously if we give less under the New Covenant, the New Testament, which is far greater than the Old Covenant, if we give less than a Jew did under law? So this 10% becomes kind of a benchmark by which we can measure generosity, something to strive toward if we're below that. But if we're above that, it's not, a, it's not a ceiling, it's a floor. And if we know that God has blessed us abundantly, we're not going to be held back by the tithe. A lot of people give far and above 10%. But anyhow, the general principle is human ownership is relative. Everything belongs to God, and we are stewards. All right, here's the third thing. 
Third of four. The basis of ownership is work. The basis of ownership is work. In Ephesians 4.28, the Apostle Paul writes, and we're talking about stealing. He says, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. So we work for what we own. And so our property, we speak of it as personal property. It is personal. Maybe you've had someone break into your home one time. You might have been away on a trip or into your car. And you come back and everything's disheveled and stuff's been taken. And a common reaction to that, and people who have experienced that, a common reaction is, I feel so what? Violated. Violated. Because it is personal. When we work for something, we're investing our life. You know, we work for a living. Someone has said, money is coined life. So we're investing our sweat equity in those things, and it becomes personal. The IKEA effect is an effect that's described. Somebody goes to IKEA. They buy a piece of furniture. Usually there's some assembly required. So you get home, put it together. It may not look exactly perfect, but it becomes the favorite piece of furniture in the house because I worked on it. I work for it. There's a kind of a pride of ownership. And that's not the bad kind of pride. It's a good and a healthy kind of pride. Bob Lupton, in his book, Toxic Charity, he talks about how charitable organizations should do poverty relief. Toxic Charity says, if you give someone something once, you get appreciation. Give someone something twice, anticipation. Three times, expectation four times entitlement, and five times dependency. And he is warning organizations, charitable organizations, in that book about helping people in a wrong way. You don't want them to wind up with a victim mentality. In John chapter 10, verse 12, Jesus said, The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he's a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. And Jesus says of himself, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You might have experienced this if you've ever rented a car. When you rent a car, do you treat it as well as you treat the car that you own? It might depend on whether you bought the collision waiver, right? The collision coverage. If you got that collision coverage, demolition demo. Or maybe you have a rental property. People who own rental property eventually have a horror story where somebody trashed the property. Why would somebody do that? It's not their property. They don't own it. They don't have the pride of ownership. Now, I want to make an application of this this morning to the church. Now, we have been saved to work. I, I do a, a Stevo Devo every day that's based upon the one-year Bible reading. So a lot of us use the one-year Bible for our daily devotions. I do many people in our congregation. So every morning I record a four or five-minute devotional based on something in that day's reading and upload it to our church Facebook page called a Stevo Devo, where this past Thursday, the day's reading in the Gospel of Mark was about Jesus going to the home of Peter and Andrew, these two brothers. They lived in a home together. And Peter's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a fever. 
And so Jesus went in there, and he, he did what Jesus does. He took her by the hand, healed her of her fever. She got up out of bed. And Mark records that immediately she went in and started preparing a meal for everybody else in the home. And I said, isn't that just like a bunch of men? Here she's sick in bed. She's probably the oldest person in the household. As soon as she gets up, the men say, hey, get in the kitchen and fix us some grub. But my application was this. We are healed to serve. We're healed of our sins to serve. In fact, in the original language, the word for healed is sozo, sozo. Same word translated in other places, saved. Just depends on the context, whether you tra translate healed or saved. We're saved to serve. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace, but we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good work, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And when we have some work to do in the church, ministry to do, it brings a sense of ownership. Now, we don't own the church. I know Jesus does. But we have ownership in our church because we have a ministry, an identifiable ministry in the church. Now, let me say, I know there are all kinds of ministry. There's ministry that happens Monday through Saturday outside the walls of this church. Many of our people volunteer in parachurch organizations. That's ministry. Some of you are raising young children in your home. That's a ministry. It's valid. It's legitimate. It's a sign of health. But we also want to have a ministry in the church and to the church, an identifiable ministry that gives us ownership in that church. It makes it hard to fall away from the church. It brings the, the sense that we are doing Christianity as a team. We are Team Jesus, and the team is the church, and we're all pulling together. We're all having work to do. So when there's a victory, like Nicole's baptism, for instance, we all share in that victory. And I want us to ask the question this morning, what is my ministry in this church? Now, you ask that of you. I'll ask it of me. And the answer is not attendance. As important as attendance is, I will never say anything to diminish the importance of church attendance. That's not the ministry. Ministries are things like our first impressions ministry. People shaking folks in the door. Nursery, children's ministry, communion ministry, preparation ministry, praise team ministry, technical team, security team, food and fellowship team, building and grounds team, mission team, outreach team, life group team, deacon team, elder team. The biggest team of all is the team no one's thought of yet. There are many teams that still need to be created. Every one of these ministries and teams that currently exist need more people. Currently, we have 103 members of this church who are involved in an identifiable ministry. Out of a total active membership of 262, that's 39%. I think that's above average. I don't know. I couldn't find the average. My guess would be the average is around 20% in the average church. It's above average, but we're not shooting for average. And by the way, if you're church shopping today. You know, so you're a guest because you're looking for a church family to become a part of. Kudos to you. Every Christian should be a part of a church home and a church family. And I know what you're looking for. You're looking for clean bathrooms, lively music, a rocking children's program, preaching that's above average. 
But here's what we should also be looking for. We should be looking around and say and asking, is this church going to put me to work? Is there a ministry for me in this church? Is there a place for me to serve God in this church? And if it's not, if there's not, it's not the right church. We have an opportunity in our congregation for an almost overnight 60% growth in ministry. And that's one of the metrics we want to measure for health, the health of the church, not just butts and seats, as they say, not just the offerings that come in, but how many people are involved in ministry. If you look at this card that's in the chair in front of you, the Connect card, there are a lot of boxes that can be checked on there. The loneliest box is the last one, the fourth box that said, I would like to learn more about serving in a ministry. If you cannot identify a ministry that you're involved in today, I encourage you, fill that out, check that box, drop it off in the Welcome Center to Scott Blount. You will get information on our ministries, how to get involved in coaching in that direction. All right. The basis of ownership is work. One final thing, fourth theme this morning. God protects ownership rights. You shall not steal. We may hear this one and we think, eh, I kind of get a break on this one today. I don't steal. I don't break into people's houses and cars and take their stuff, which I'm sure that's true. However, I was reading one commentary. He noted a lot of ways that we might violate the Eighth Commandment that we might not have thought of. Let me just go through those real quick. Of course, they're stealing, being dishonest in little things, not restoring what I have stolen, giving away what does not belong to me, receiving stolen goods, not seeking the owner of lost property, not returning what I have borrowed, not being straightforward in money matters, not returning what was given by mistake, cheating others, not paying debts, going into debt without prospect of being able to repay, obtaining money or credit under false pretenses, being extravagant, evading taxes, not giving God his due in the matter of giving, being stingy, hoarding money, paying insufficient wages, injuring the property or the good name of others, not restoring my neighbor's good name when I have injured it, being idle, taking credit due to others. We want to listen to God's word this morning, make sure that we are working, and be focused more on spiritual things than we are on material things. Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. When Jesus was crucified, he was in the middle between two men. Two other men were crucified that day. And as one was dying, he repented. And he turned to Jesus. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turned to that man and he answered, Today you will be with me where? In paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. We call that man the what on the cross, the thief, the thief on the cross, the one who had broken the Eighth Commandment. And as someone who has violated the Eighth Commandment in some of the ways that are listed here by this commentator, that's reassuring to me. By the grace of God, the ground is level at the foot of that cross. I want us to hear God saying to us this morning, Maybe not today, but you will be with me in paradise. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, God. You have entrusted us with a lot of abundance 
and a lot of prosperity. We recognize that. We recognize in this country, by and large, we're in the top 2% of the entire world. We are more prosperous than most people that have lived in most times in history. We thank you. We want to be good stewards of what you have entrusted to us. But also, you've given us this great gift of grace, of mercy, of forgiveness, and of salvation. You have placed us into your kingdom, the church. We are on Team Jesus Lord, we don't take that for granted. And in gratitude to you, we give ourselves wholeheartedly to your kingdom work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.